Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into a discussion with Utah native Chris Ames about his interesting new book, An American Homeless in Paris, some unfinished business from a recent episode of Access Utah, we talked with Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan about new rules from the FCC on net neutrality. They are loosening up. The, uh, the rules, the regulations that were uh, in place on uh, net neutrality had a vigorous discussion, including um, uh, calls and emails from uh, several people around the state uh, put out the uh, question, how is your connectivity in rural areas? And we got some uh, good responses there. And uh, we got uh, some disagreement between Jonathan Choate and uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, Jonathan Choate, uh, his uh, take is that the new rules won't have much of an effect. Steve disagrees, and he has sent in after the program a couple of uh, links to some articles. First of these is from Recode.net. And the uh, headline and subheadline here, the U.S. ranks 28th in the world in mobile Internet speeds. We have slower mobile internet than Greece, Greece, exclamation point. And Recode uh, says that uh, mobile internet speeds are becoming increasingly important because more and more of us are uh, connecting to the internet exclusively or mostly through our mobile devices. And then Steve has uh, sent in a uh, link to a, an article from the New York Times. The headline here, Big Tech to Join Legal Fight Against Net Neutrality Repeal. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here from the New York Times. Uh, an industry group that represents the country's biggest technology companies said on Friday it planned to join a looming legal fight against the Federal Communications Commission over its repeal of so-called net neutrality rules. In its announcement, the group, the Internet Association, made clear for the first time that Facebook, Google, Netflix, and other large tech firms would put their reputations and financial clout behind that challenge. Keep those comments coming to upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before a post-divorce road trip, Chris Ames had been ensconced in French domesticity with a wife, two children, and a regular job. Returning to Paris after that trip, he became an American vagabond and seeker who, lacking sufficient means and motivation to pay the rent and invest again in permanence, opted for homelessness. He soon found an unexpected place to pitch his tent, an abandoned golf course. Ames recounts a full year spent living there with little baggage, through snow and heat, while commuting to his job as an English teacher in the city. Developing his urban survivor skills, he rekindles relationships, starts others, offers glimpses of Parisian society, homeless and not, and ruminates on direction and lack thereof. The book is An American Homeless in Paris. It's out from University of Utah Press. And it's winner of the Nonfiction Award in the Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. And Chris Ames joins us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Chris Ames, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So very, uh, very interesting adventures here and uh, included here. And I want to get into your, your time there in, uh, in Paris and the, and the golf course. Um, but I but, uh, want to reach back, uh, precede that. You, did, did you grow up in Utah? Yeah, out in the Mill Creek area of Salt Lake. I went to Olympus High. Okay. And uh, you you write in your introduction that uh, traveling just really got in your blood. And, and in fact, we'll, we'll explore this as we go along. You, uh, you draw a comparison traveling to homelessness, um, some of the similar ups and uh, downs there. Uh, one of the things you write about uh, is hitchhiking all across North America. You, you got to know it like the back of your hand, you say. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I spent uh, maybe eight months hitchhiking back and forth and up and down through Canada and Mexico as well. Tell me a little bit about hitchhike, uh, uh, hitchhiking, and we'll get into talking about, there's a chapter in your book, <laughs> just a rip-rousing adventure, hitchhiking from uh, southern Utah to uh, to Salt Lake City. But hitchhiking in general, uh, it's got a reputation as being a little bit uh, dangerous. Uh, you've done a lot of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I still do. I don't know about the United States now because of the political climate. It's very polarized. But believe me, it's not as dangerous as you might think. It's just as dangerous for the driver as it is for me. And it's a sort of trade-off when I know someone's stopping. It's a, it's a trade-off. He's taking a, ch- uh, taking a chance. I'm taking a chance. But it's kind of canceled out. And it's always been good experiences, except for, of course, what you read about in July. Yeah, yeah, that was that was quite the experience. So you you, you mentioned the, the polarized climate, and the, I guess you try to stay away from politics when you get into a car. Or what what are, you, what are you referring to there? Yeah, yeah, I want to talk more about the weather and about the the land around where we're traveling. Yeah, but I guess it could <laughs> could get heated to the point where they'd. They'd kick you out, maybe. Or, oh, I've never been kicked out. I've never been kicked out at all. Oh, you haven't. I've had I've had good arguments. I've had a guy take his gun out of his glove compartment just to show me, but that didn't count as, say, July did in this book. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, you know. Don't have to reveal all the story there. I want to preserve some of the stories, but uh, tell me a little bit about that experience in the chapter. The, by the way, to, for people who haven't read the book and. Uh, recommend that you do go out and get it. Um, uh, July, it, it, the chapters go by months. So this is July and you're in you're in southern Utah. You're mm. uh, shepherding, you're driving some people who are exploring the national monuments or the national mm. parks. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, my brother came down to take over. I had to get back up to the University of Utah here. And, well, I just went out on I-15 at the Hurricane exit and got a ride up. With the, well, with Kansas plates. And I go, oh, that's great. He's going to Kansas. I'm not going to Kansas. I'll go up to I-70 and continue on. But, uh, well, he ends up being a, well, he ends up having stolen the truck. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, you know, he's an older guy. He's maybe 65 or 70. So, yeah, okay, some old, at this time I was, what, I was 30 and so I think, okay, an old gentleman, but boy, he was far from being an old gentleman. Hmm. And he he was at a crisis point in his life, and oh, yeah. uh, you you just happened upon him at that point. That's that's adrenaline yeah. must have been flowing, especially when he uh, when he pulls a gun out. Yeah, well, the first gun he pulled, I was driving. I mean, both both times I was driving because he was drunk, and so I offered to drive. Uh, the first time, it was just, okay, he, f- he tossed the gun at me, and, well, I don't want to, re- well, okay, you can read it. He wanted me to kill him. And, of course, I don't want to kill anybody, so I just dropped the gun down by my side of the uh, seat. And I figured, okay, he'll he'll chill out. But he, yeah, he chilled out for an hour from Levan up to the Wasatch Front. And then things got a little bit hairier as we came around the junction of I-80 and I-15 in traffic. Mm. And, you know, you know, you can, you can read the end of the chapter there. It's a little bit too... Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, I assume you haven't been in, back in touch, given how, how it ended. Not with him. Not with him, no. 
Um, but I wonder, uh, that's maybe the most hair-raising experience you've, you've had, but uh, you, you say generally, at least in the past, you have felt okay, felt, felt safe hitchhiking? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know now. I mean, I may go to Mexico next month, and I'm thinking, well, should I just fly to El Paso and then cross the border but, uh, and then take a bus away from the border because Juarez isn't the safest city in the world? But, you know, I was here last year, and I hitchhiked down to El Paso, and I hitchhiked all the way to Cancun. Mexico's a great country. Mm. <laughs> Tell me, uh, maybe you, any other people stand out, uh, interesting people that you've hitched with? I haven't really... Believe me, hitchhiking is too, is not is harder, because, of course, there's less room in the car, and there's less trust from the drivers. Because if you're alone, you sit in front with the driver. But if you're two people, there's always there will be someone in back. And the driver, my father has told me this, how he once picked up two people and the person in back started raising problems. And he drove straight to a police station and they ran away because he didn't take any of their crap. They were wanting to blackmail him for money. Mm. So, no. I, I haven't really hitchhiked with another person. Yeah, uh, but but one on one uh, meeting the drivers uh, is there anyone who stands out? Oh, wow! Probably the guy in upstate New York who gave me a ride for about two miles, and he looked like he came out of the 18th century. He wasn't Amish or anything, but he just was really old and old-fashioned, and he spoke English, and I hardly understood, but it was. I still remember it now, and this was from like maybe 1980. But other than that, I mean, I've had probably 10,000, 20,000 rides in my life hmm. over the years. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. Um, tell me about uh, when did so you traveled all over the U.S. and uh, you know North America, a lot of that uh, hitchhiking. Uh, you've traveled all over the world. What? Uh, it, where do you yeah. think that comes from? Your, you know, the, Soul of a vagabond? What uh, what happened there? Oh, I was down in Southern Utah State College at the time. It's now Southern Utah University. And it was basically Michael Cohen, who is now in Reno, Nevada. I was a biology major, of all things. And he convinced me to change my major to English. And one of the first books I read at this time when I was 19 was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And when my Datsun pickup broke down, I said, well, I'm going to try this. I just went out on the road and I hitched up to Salt Lake. And I go, this is fun. I mean, the first truck that came by stopped. And I just went from there. I mean, I, I four years around Europe, I hitchhiked, getting to know all the countries and languages. And when I was in Japan, I hitchhiked on the weekends to get to know the country there, too. Oh, very interesting. You've been uh, interesting thing. I have fascination with the with the stands. You've been through the stands. Yeah, just this this past year, I spent from February until basically Christmas. Now I came back home here for Christmas. I traveled overland from Paris to Mongolia and back across, of course, the stands going there, and I came back across Russia. What was the idea there? You you had not been there. What what was? Why did yeah, you pick exactly. that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's, it was a part of the world. The geography was just a big empty space for me, and I wanted to know it. And I wrote a book about the Silk Road along the way. I wrote hmm. stories of on the Silk Road. So, to, I guess just briefly, how how are the how are the stands? How how is that country? I've never been there. Oh man, 
Well, Turkmenistan, I don't recommend. First of all, it's very hard to get a visa, and then the secret police follow you around. Um, Uzbekistan is a police state, but very interesting culture. That's where Samarkand is and Bukhara, the old Silk Road cities, very beautiful um, tile work and ancient architecture. The most beautiful country in the world, you probably never heard of it, is Kyrgyzstan. It's amazingly beautiful. The Tian Shan Mountains go to 25,000 feet. There are there millions of horses running free. I mean, I, it was the first time in my life I'd been camping and waking up surrounded by horses, curious, hmm. curious at my tent. And it's, it's just a beautiful country, Kyrgyzstan. So I guess other than Turkmenistan, you can, I guess you, you were able to get in and you just were followed by the secret police. You can, you can, you can get visas. It's, uh, it's well, Tajikistan. That, yeah, yeah. Kyrgyzstan, it's at the border. You have, you have as much as 60 days and you can renew it for another 60 days. Kazakhstan is six months because I think they want American businessmen to go there and settle in and not have any trouble doing business in Kazakhstan. Tajikistan is an e-visa where you just spend, you spend $70 and you get 45 days for Tajikistan, hmm. which is south. Yeah. Okay. So Kyrgyzstan is the one you really recommend. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's okay. a beautiful vacation spot. Yeah. You can rent a horse for $5 a day. Wow. And you rent a, you rent a guide for five dollars a day. Yeah, very very affordable, and it sounds very beautiful. Yeah. You've been you've been have you been through Russia? Yeah, I spent uh, two and a half months on this this past year through Russia. Yeah, what what was that like? The people are fantastic. Don't believe that you know. Of course, they Vladimir is our adversary, and I don't like him all that much. When I was in Russia, I asked people about him, and they said, "Ah, forget about him. I don't even want to think about him." So they tend to become apolitical now because I think they don't have a choice, mm -hmm. and, and just want to get on with their lives. Kind of yeah. yeah, and it's it's they're very kind people, and the police were very kind. They helped me out. They even gave me rides sometimes through towns, and they showed me. I went. I met a KGB agent. And, you know, I asked him if he knew Vladimir, and he said yes. And I told him, well, say hi to Vladimir and tell him to smile a little more. <laughs> so he was would, he would, open about it, I guess. He was a KGB agent, and he'd, he'd yeah. let you know? Yeah, well, I could see he was very sly, and, you know, he looked at my jewelry, and I have a sort of gift from a friend who was Arabic in Paris, and he gave me this bracelet, which is a verse from the Koran, protecting the traveler. And the first thing the KGB agent says is, where did you get that? Hmm. So he, he was looking at me very closely until he, and then he just pointed out that question there. Hmm. That brings up a, a question I guess most people would have traveling in the, the, those areas, I guess most anywhere in the world. Uh, safety. Do you feel really safe? How did you keep oh, yourself very safe? Very safe. Very safe. Believe me, I, I, I camped sometimes in Russia. Well, okay, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, I actually did couch surfing. But in cities like Kazan or Irkutsk, there were nice parks. <laughs> I just camped in the park and rolled up the tent in the morning, and no one bothered me. And in the stands as well, felt fairly safe? Oh, yeah. Believe me, the United States is the most dangerous country in the world. <laughs> because of the guns? Yeah. 
and because of a sort of insulated attitude of the people. I know, I know it's not our fault that we have the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on the other, and we don't get out to see the difference between the United States and other countries, but believe me, this country is hair-raising at times. Hmm. Uh, what do and you write about this a bit in the in the book? How are Americans viewed in uh, these various parts of, of the world? Uh, for the most part, the American dream lives on. I try. I don't want to dispel that sort of myth. Maybe it isn't a myth. I mean, it's good to have that good attitude of hope. But the American dream lives on in so many people. I've had people, even after this Uzbek guy ran over eight people in New York, I had two Uzbek friends saying, please sponsor me. I want to come to America. I love your country. And I go, well, I think it's going to be a little harder now getting in and, you know, sponsoring you. So, the, you you know, you could think maybe perceptions are changing given the current climate in the U.S., political climate uh, from your, I guess, anecdotal uh, uh, pieces of information, not so at this point. Uh, no. You know, there are people who wonder about this uh, president that we have. But the Russians, I mean, I, I talk to the Russians, they go, isn't he a smart businessman? <laughs> I go, I, are you kidding? Do, do you hear him? And they, they, they don't really hear. They're, they're presented our president as a smart businessman in mm. their media. Mm. There's a. We'll take a break soon here, but and get into your the, the heart of your story here. But uh, there's a scene in the book where you're awaiting uh, some people. Uh, I think this is the Paris airport in Paris, uh, and you you spot them Americans uh, coming uh, out of the gate, and you say it's so it's easy to spot Americans. <laughs> why, why is it easy to spot Americans? Uh, mostly because half of us are overweight, and not just a little bit. So that is an American characteristic. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, Poland, and there are a few Slavic countries where they eat too many of their their kolobas or hot dogs and things like this. But for the most part, Americans tend to be overweight, and they, they wear casual... I mean, it's nice to wear casual clothing, and but sometimes it's a bit too casual. Mm. Oh, there's another characteristic, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's do take a break right now. We're talking with Chris Ames, his uh, latest book, uh, interesting book, An American Homeless in Paris is the name of the book. It's the winner of the nonfiction award from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. It's out from University of Utah Press. And we'll get into the heart of the story where he, uh, after a, a divorce, um, he opted for homelessness, uh, found an abandoned golf course there in the Paris area, lived there while he was teaching English in in the city more following this break no cell in your 100 billion cells in your brain is it in a neuron is having a thought if you took your neuron out and lay it on the table could you see the bit of the thought that's in that neuron but together they are no it's not in the neuron together they're falling in love or, or wanting to write music so who's in there this week on radio lab we look at the leaderless logic of ants cities google even your own brain who's sitting inside the head of the person sitting inside my head Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Hans Zimmer might be Hollywood's top film composer. His music turns ordinary scenes into something epic. If you saw Dunkirk or Blade Runner 2049, well, you know what I mean. You'll hear how he does it. That's coming up on Q from PRI or Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 
on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're back with Chris Ames. The book is An American Homeless in Paris. It's out from University of Utah Press, and it's winner of the Nonfiction Award in the Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. And Chris Ames is joining us from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks at KCPW. Uh, so, Chris Ames, you were married in in Paris, I guess, in France there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 14 years. 14 years. A couple of kids? Yeah. Juliet and Gabriel. And uh, I guess, the, 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 well, t- tell me how that, how did you settle down? You were, you, you'd been used to traveling all over, I guess, and uh, at some point you decided, well, I'm going to, or, di- or did you settle down? I don't know. You got married anyway. <laughs> yeah, I got married. I don't know if I settled down. No, I met my ex-wife on top of Mount Sinai. And, you know, for some reason she didn't have, there was a refuge up there. She didn't have a sleeping bag. And I was in a small little hut, well, stone hut with 12 other guys. And I basically just kept her warm in a very gentle, biblical, not in a biblical way, but I kept her warm. And then we just started our relationship from the top of Mount Sinai. Mm. And, you know, I was 32 at the time. And I was, I had come back to Europe from Japan and China and a little bit worn out. And I ended up coming to France. She was 30. And I think both of us just decided it was time to have a family and settle down. And so let me just quote this passage from the book. Uh, After marriage in France, Chris Ames writes, I was supposed to undergo what the French called boboization. My bohemian side was to develop, and it was supposed to develop a bourgeois side. The hippie should become evolve into a yuppie, right? <laughs> but, but apparently there was there were some growing pains there. There's some there's some troubles there. Yeah, the French don't really have they have bobos. I wouldn't really call them yuppies because it's a sort of stylistic maneuver where you 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 can dress like a like well very coolly kind of not necessarily like a hippie but you're supposed to have a lot of money at the same time Hmm. and i you know i had a small salary and i think i just needed to make a lot more money to please the the people around me Hmm. uh so at at a certain point um the the marriage ends you you take a trip i think then you come back that point would uh, take me through the decision that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to live in a tent. Well, I, you know, like I say, I spent a year on a sabbatical after the divorce. They they allow you to take time off in France when you have traumatic experiences. <laughs> I went to I was camping in Patagonia and Australia and uh, Southeast Asia, and when I came back, I had twenty euros in my pocket and I had to work the next day. I had my all my jobs, everything was okay. And a friend of my daughter's actually pointed out this abandoned golf course near where I had been living with my family for eight years. And I figured, okay, I'll camp there and I'll be looking for an apartment. And after a month, I mean, I was expecting the police to come, and when the police finally did come, they said, welcome. <laughs> they didn't They didn't want to kick me off. They said, it's okay if you want to camp here. R- yeah. Really? 
That's yeah. uh, and I've I've I was you know Googled up the title of the book and uh, brought up some things on your book, but also brought up some um, you know uh, experiences, essays on homelessness in Paris. One person was saying that uh, easier to be homeless in in France than it is in many other countries. Yeah, there there are soup kitchens, just like maybe the 1930s America. There are soup kitchens all around. There are very generous people. I mean, of course, they do they do cast judgment, like like perhaps anywhere, any human. But they have this sense towards the poor that I don't know if it is generally Catholic, or maybe it is simply built into their socio-political psyche that they should be, you know, not necessarily giving out big handouts of money, but giving food and, and extra clothes and things like this for the poor. And so you see the poor there, they're equipped much more than here. So I, I believe in many areas the police would not be saying welcome. No. They, they, you know, they do. The, the police did ask for my passport, and they, I, I think because they saw, wait, this guy's American? What's he doing here? Because they also have this attitude, but Americans are well off. What's this guy doing? They're used to Romanians and Bulgarians. And so I think that helped, too. Now, you were, you were employed, right? And I think yeah. th- there's a stereotype of homeless, you know, at least in America, that, uh, you know, you're... You're drug addicted. You're not employed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh no! I worked off the Champs Elysees. I had, I was the teacher of the CEO of the BNP, a bank. I was the, teaching the, um, what would you say, the pack. Well, many people at Chanel and L'Oréal. I was teaching these up, these really high scale businesses, and they loved me because I was just natural. I wasn't pretending to be anything that I was. Tell me a little bit more about, uh, I guess, this decision and and what flowed from it. Uh, you you make in the introduction to the book you you make a uh, a comparison. Let me just read this. Though traveling isn't the same as being homeless in the sense of uh, stray human cats on the city street corner, I had been essentially without a home until I began to consider the whole world as my home. And then you go on to say, um, you, you have a, a fascination with Buddhism. I would live like an outcast monk and embrace the immaterial. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do that. I, well, I suppose I still do do that. I don't have many things in my life, many material things. But yeah, I, I, the, the golf course was next to a monastery, and uh, the bells woke me up every morning. I generally knew what time it was either from the monastery or the train going by because there was a commuter train about 200 yards away and I could judge from the first train in the morning or the last train at night when it time when it was time to go to bed anyway. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm sure there were raised eyebrows from people who knew you. Um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, you, your boss. You call her Queen Victoria. Yeah, she looks like Queen Victoria. <laughs> Isobel, she's about four foot eleven and two hundred and fifty pounds of dynamite. Very kind person. I hope she's listening. And you recount in the book a conversation where she's she's a bit skeptical of your plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm sure she's still wondering how I am now, but because I'm here in Utah, I'm not there working anymore for her. But. Uh, 
No, I mean, I, I got along well with her because she had feedback from my students. And as long as the students were happy, she, w- she said, okay. So tell me a little bit more about teaching English. This was, was one-on-one or was it classroom settings? Or? Well, it was, it was both. Uh, mostly it was one-on-one. There were moments when it was like f- groups of four people. I had I had two university well continuing education classes at the university three classes sometimes, where I had fifteen students and they were doctoral students of English they were obliged to take English, but I would get them in conversation and we'd remake the world in in two and a half hours. Hmm. Uh, make friendships that way. Yeah, I mean, as you in the book, there's a Chinese, there's a Chinese student who followed me back to the golf course because she didn't believe I was doing this. I told I told my class my situation, and then I was writing a book about it. And so, yeah, I I have some friends. I still have uh, Luca, who's another character in the book. Who's he's actually the head of the, the Maison de la Mode, the fashion center in Paris, and he's really a bobo. But he accepts me as a friend. Hmm. What do you think you were, if anything, you were looking for? All that travel and that, that time living on the golf course while teaching in Paris and I guess continuing, what what are you looking for? Oh, I'm still looking for how to slow down time, how to control time. I know it's a crazy concept time and I, I realize in my books I'm beginning to write more and more about it and the relationship that we have with our planet because I think people are really detaching themselves with these gadgets they have much more so than than 30 or 40 years ago with the television set and I'm worried about that and I'm worried about it for myself too and so I I really have this relationship with the planet earth and with my time on it and how to make the best of my time uh, you say you worry about it for yourself. You, you might get sucked in as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm 57 years old now. I don't know how many more years I have. And I, I, okay, I worry about it for everyone, for my children, for anyone who might be interested in, in trying to find a meaning to their lives. Mm. <laughs> you know. How, how best to go about, you know, I think most of us want to find meaning in our lives. You've... You've been many places. You've been, you know, seems like searching in a certain way. How, how would you advise to go about finding that meaning? Well, like I say, I think in the book that attitude is everything, and many homeless people fall into a dark hole of despair. And I decided not to fall into a dark hole of despair, but to really take life by the horns, so to speak, and try to. every day to squeeze something out of it. I know we are mortal. You can believe in an afterlife. I don't know if I do. I mean, I'm just trying to make my life here better. And I think it's, it's the way I deal with strangers because I'm not afraid. I, I, I don't want to feel cut off from people, even though being homeless and I'm still homeless now in Europe, I'm going to be going back in April. It's, I don't want to be cut off from people. And I, I, last night we came out of the jazz game and we walked and there were homeless people at the McDonald's and homeless people by Pioneer Park. And it just felt, I mean, I didn't go up to them and give them money or anything. I wanted to talk to a few of them. 
But it's so despairing here compared to Paris. So what would I was going to ask you about that? We, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of discussion, government and uh, everything else about the homeless, especially in Salt Lake City. What do we, you have a unique perspective on that? What, what would you say about uh, how to interact with the homeless? What can and should be done? Well. I, not necessarily towards the people interacting with the homeless. I wish the homeless would interact more with the people. And I know they talk about panhandling here. It's I don't want them to be bumming for money, but they need to be able to talk more with people. I mean, even here at the library, there are homeless inside here keeping warm. And they're among themselves, and people generally just walk around them. And I wish there'd be more interaction, like there is in Paris. I think people aren't afraid as much. They don't have a stigma attaching to the homeless as much as they do here. Why do you think that is? Well, once again, because in America you're supposed to succeed, and if you fall through the cracks, well, that's your fault. (laughs) <laughs> and I think in Europe, with its socialism, which is such a dirty word here, but for me, socialism is being sociable. Hmm. And, you know, come on, pay some more taxes. Don't think that, you know, okay, I don't want to get too political here. Hmm. But there needs to be more interaction. And the, ho- the homeless need to take their responsibility, too. And, uh, yeah. In what way? Well, simply, okay. There is a lot of work around here. I mean, I'm here now writing another book during this winter, hibernating, being home with my brother and his daughter and not wanting to be cold. But I am working. And I know there's a lot of work out here. I've been offered jobs here in the past three weeks. And I I substitute here and substitute teach for fun here in Salt Lake City School District. So I think the homeless should... I'm not saying get off their butts and go get a job because I know it will be hard to be hired the way people discriminate against them. But if I were in Salt Lake City now and homeless and it's like 29 degrees out there, yeah, I know there are many more in Los Angeles or Las Vegas or San Francisco, but I'd find someplace warm, honestly, rather than suffer here. Hmm. And I guess we should be uh, careful, uh, you know, that uh, we say homeless, but they're there, there are many, many kinds of people out there, many different situations under that label. Yeah, I know. And it's, I think it's unfair because even though I was homeless, here I was teaching CEOs. You know, I was teaching at university. I have this book published now. I have four other books published in Europe. So, of course, it's my own um, self-esteem that is keeping me afloat. <laughs> So I know it's hard to keep your self-esteem up, especially as we get older and being pushed away as the young people rise up to take their positions in society. If you just joined us, we're talking with Chris Ames, uh, his latest book, An American Homeless in Paris. It's out from University of Utah Press. So you say, uh, Chris Ames, uh, you'll be soon going back to Europe and you'll you'll live in a tent again? Well, I'm going back in April. Um, I will be going, I will be selling a book in the Paris Metro. As a matter of fact, I have a bilingual book of poetry that's coming out in Paris and I make $200 a day working three hours in the Paris Metro. Oh, selling the book. Yeah. Oh, and I I sell, I sell 20 books a day in three hours at 10 euros a piece. Mm -hmm. And I will sell maybe, uh, let's see, they're making an addition 700. That's 7,000 euros that will be coming. 
because I, you know, I'm more, I pay with the bookmaker. I just, I find a bookmaker in Paris. And from this money, I'm going back to Russia because I'm writing a book now called The Next Step. And it's not necessarily a parody of On the Road, but it's a road book, but it's dealing with Russia, not America. So I will be going back. I'm going to Vladivostok, hitchhiking to Vladivostok from Paris. And I'll be back in Paris then in September, and I will probably then go to Brittany where my, where my two children and my ex live, and I'll probably get a job in Brittany in Saint-Malo on the coast. Oh, it sounds, uh, sounds beautiful. Yeah, yeah, Brittany. Paris is nice. Yeah. And Brittany is nice. Good yeah. oysters. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, do you, have, do you have a couple of favorite places? Sounds like you've been everywhere. Well, I mean, of course, Kyrgyzstan is still in my mind, but you know, people ask me this all the time. If I were going to Europe, I'd go to Spain. If I give people advice, go to Spain. If you like a sort of old Europe, go to Hungary, even though it might get bad press because of its authoritarian leader. It's still an interesting country. Uh, South America, go to Chile, Argentina, Patagonia, of course. Asia, go to Japan. So, hmm. uh, this might be a good place to bring this in. Uh, this is uh, from from the book, page one eighty two. Uh, you say um, there's nothing like traveling to bring us back to our senses, to make us see the size of this planet. It also takes us out of that house we call home and makes us see it in our hearts. Be at the finest mansion or the lowest tent. Breaking down those barriers, I guess uh, that's what that's what traveling does. I guess for most anyone, so it sounds like it does for you. Yeah, 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 it does. And the world is still a very beautiful place. I mean, I know this the, the climate change and the overpopulation it could bring people down, but traveling is still a, a good occupation and a wonderful thing to do. Mm. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with uh, Chris Ames. We'll have our last segment with Chris Ames. The book is An American Homeless in Paris, out from University of Utah Press. More following this. Next time on Philosophy Talk, the philosophy of retirement with our recently retired host, John Perry. John is the perfect guest for this show because he's really good at retiring. Yeah, first he retired from Stanford, then he retired from UC Riverside, then he retired from UC Berkeley. And then he retired from hosting Philosophy Talk. But he joins us again to share his wit and wisdom on retirement. The philosophy of retirement. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. America's founding fathers had the same fears about aging we have today. Their concerns about getting old are very much the same ones we have. Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to become somebody who's a burden on my family? I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with Good Reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're back with our final segment with Chris Ames. His latest book is An American Homeless in Paris. It's out from University of Utah Press. It's winner of the Nonfiction Award in the Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. And Chris Ames joins us from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our, our thanks to those good folks there. Uh, Chris Ames was born and raised in Utah, but has spent the last uh, 38 years trying to understand the planet and his people. He says learning a handful of languages, traveling in 100 countries, 
And uh, when he was in Paris, uh, after a divorce, a road trip there, came back, found an abandoned golf course, lived in a tent for for a year while uh, teaching English there in the in the city. He recounts those experiences and others in this book. Again, the book is an American homeless uh, in in Paris. Uh, Chris Ames, I want to talk a little bit more about the breaking down these barriers. We talked a little bit at the end of the last segment. Uh, traveling does that. Living living in a tent, I guess, would and uh, would help do that as well. But is it also a mindset, something you seek uh, to do? We we do you know kind of regular quote unquote life. It can get pretty. There there can be some pretty defined boundaries. Get in your car, you travel somewhere. You're maybe alone. Uh, you get back home, you deal with your family. At work, it's the same people uh, over and over again. You don't tend to meet as many strangers as I imagine you would living the life you did in there in Paris. Well, yeah, but believe me, the tent was like an enclosure as well. Yeah, as you'll read in the book, I end up sharing the tent a little bit, but I felt it very much as my own enclo- closed-off space. Not necessarily, I mean, anyone could come if they wanted to and rip it open or z- unzip it. It's not as easier than, than picking a lock, but uh, I still had this feeling of, okay, I wanted to be on my own in the evenings. Hmm. So, I mean, that's important too, right? Well, let me just uh, read this quote as well. This is Chris Ames. I'm not saying become homeless, but do understand it opens many doors and it helps us appreciate the doors we can close. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I was vandalized a few times, and I did have some unexpected guests when I didn't want them. And nothing dangerous, mind you, but, you know, when I when I met my brothers, and now he's given me a key, and he tells me to lock the door going out, and I remember my dad never locking the door and locking the doors of his car, and I know times have changed. I'm not trying to go back to the 1950s, but... Uh, it's true that I appreciate being here now in Salt Lake City and recovering from this past trip. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about coming home again, or, you know, famously, <laughs> you can't go home again, uh, is the famous quote. Uh, but you grew up in Utah, you've traveled extensively, now back in Utah. What's what has changed in your perceptions, your perspective, or, or have your perspectives stayed pretty much the same about your home state? Oh, oh, they're generally the same. There are, there are a lot more people now. Um, the politics are, well, always the same. <laughs> the church is generally the same. I grew up in this church, by the way. So, you know, I have my next-door neighbors was part of the bishopric and he's still a good pal we played basketball the other day but you know it's utah it needs to you know i'm just hoping mitt romney says i'm going to be a democrat and obamacare was good (laughs) (laughs) obama copied me so we'll see what happens yeah, probably not much chance of that, but you can always hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but Utah's still a beautiful place, and I, it's still in my heart as my home. It's my home here. You have uh, plans to recreate some of the earlier travels in, in Utah or across America, or, or is it back to Europe? Uh, 
Well, like I say, maybe next month I'm going to go down to Mexico just because I like Mexico. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. people and beautiful country. But, you know, like I say, I'm going back to Russia this year. I have a three-year visa for Russia, by the way, multiple entry. Mm. So, and I will return to, uh, I don't know, maybe even Kyrgyzstan in, in August since it's so beautiful. Mm. But uh, as time goes by and my knees get worse, like I say, I will probably try to get a job in Brittany. And, you know, if I if this book succeeds, and I hope it does, because I have the sequel lined up already, and I want to get a book contract somewhere. And when I ease into my retirement in my 60s, I hopefully will not be homeless and on the road and camping out. Because mm. it, is, it is wearing me out, mm-hmm. to be honest. What, what can you tell us about the, uh, the planned sequel? Well, as you know, I lived on maybe 10 acres of land here on, the golf, on this par three golf course. It wasn't a country club, mind you. And I won't tell you what happened, I mean, in the book, but the sequel is called Pied à Terre, which, as you know, well, some of you might know, is like just a little apartment. Because I ended up getting a little apartment after this in Paris, and I wrote about the difference between living on 10 acres and living in 10 square meters, which is really small. I mean, smaller than anything Ameri- American studios throw, throw at you. Mm-hmm. And instead of Buddhism, because I wrote Buddhism because of you know, my time in Asia, this time I, I, inter- I put in stories about Islam, because as you know, Paris is having some troubles with Islam integrating or trying to integrate their North African community. Mm. And so this time I have Islamic stories from my, my travels in Islamic countries. By the way, how, how is that integration, attempted integration uh, going? As you, as you said, there's, there's, some, there's been some hiccups along the way. Yeah, they're not integrating as well as the French government might like them to. They don't want to, okay, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement because I know some good good people who are Islamic in Paris. But for the most part, these young punks and gangsters who mostly just sell drugs and hang out, they're not terrorists, but they can become terrorists. They don't want to be French, even though they are French. And they're not trying to integrate. And this is a worry uh, across many Western nations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens in Iran, because this is where it all started, the Islamic revolution in Iran, mixing religion and politics. Before that, people could be Muslim, and it wasn't a big deal. But the moment they politicized it and got power, thinking they could get power through politics, things get screwed up. Hmm. I wonder, uh, you're, you're planning on ending up in Brittany, Getting a job, perhaps retirement there. Uh, these are some. I wanted to connect this with some. I guess some concerns I have. You, through your life, the world expands. In your old age, it uh, tends to contract. And someone who has had such an expansive life in terms of uh, travel, do you, is that part of? Do you have a worry that it'll kind of contract there in Brittany? Well, okay. I I'm not going to. I probably won't die in Brittany. <laughs> But uh, I, can, I can imagine spending time until both my children are very well positioned in what they want to do in their lives. Because when I look at the world, I look at Okinawa, 
You know, I, I see old people in Japan, older people are respected. They're looked to for wisdom. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm 120 years old, I hope I live in Okinawa. I don't know mm -hmm. if I'll make it to 120, but that's where they live the longest and they have the best diet and the very comfortable life there. So, you know, I'm looking beyond Brittany to my dotage when I'm hopefully 80 or 90 and to get back to Japan. Oh, interesting. And maybe a, a further book on that. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to, from the end of your introduction, maybe this is a good place to end the conversation. Um, you say, and so take this book for what it is and attempt to combine extremes and emerge relatively unscathed and happy to be alive. Here's the key part. I want to have you comment on after having lived through this time, I'll never write another fiction again. Fiction is in um, italics. Yeah, making something up. Why, why do we have to make things up? All our lives, each and every one of us, is a book and can be can be made interesting. I mean, I'm not make and not by making things up, just by writing, and 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 looking with your own personal attitude about your own life. It, every life is is interesting. I believe. I mean, people can say they're bored. Well, that's their fault. I think life is not boring at all. Every life is interesting. You don't have to have traveled yes. as extensively as you have to. That's have right. Life. Okay. That's right. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about uh, about this book, An American Homeless in Paris? Well, I hope everyone goes out and buys it. <laughs> it's, okay. it's a very it's a very entertaining book. It doesn't have any trigger warning. Maybe they might want to put a trigger warning on it because it is Paris after all, and the things that happened were such an adventure because it was. It was stranger than fiction, and all these things that happened were, were really happened. And that is why, I mean, I decided after I wrote this book that why try to invent a world? We have this world right now all around us, and it's a fascinating place. Well, we've been talking with Chris Ames. His latest book is An American Homeless in Paris. And it's winner of the Nonfiction Award in the Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. And American Homeless in Paris is out from the University of Utah Press. Chris Ames has joined us from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Chris Ames, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Imagine you're going backpacking in the mountains for a month. You can only take one food. What would it be? Some folks might grab a favorite snack without much thought to essential nutrients. I once went snowshoeing with a friend who hauled a five-pound bag of candy, five pounds of gummy bears. But we're Utah Public Radio listeners, a more practical sort. Chances are good you imagined a nutrient-dense, shelf-stable, nutty foodstuff. If you're younger than 20, the likelihood is even higher you envisioned peanut butter. Our sympathies to those with nut allergies, the United States of America is a peanut butter nation. Every year, we consume close to 700 million pounds of peanut butter. That's three pounds per person, and most of them aren't backpacking. Peanut butter sandwiches are a lunchbox staple. Peanut butter cookies, a given at bake sales. We go gaga for the goobernut in our candies, ice cream, muffins, and pies. We stir it into our oatmeal and smoothies. We're even joining other countries using peanut butter in more savory dishes, including stews and satays. 
Versatile and reliable, peanut butter delivers velvety layers of sweet and salty to main dishes and desserts. The best peanut butters add more complexity with a richly roasted revelation that smooths the palate. And to think, it all started with dental care. That's right. Our culinary preferences are guided by what our chompers can chew. In the case of peanut butter, historians believe the ancient Aztecs and Incas used peanut paste as a remedy for toothaches. Peanut butter as we know it came on the scene in the late 1800s, developed by a physician searching for a protein-packed alternative for aged people who could not chew solid food. If you were lucky enough to become aged in the 1800s, it was generally without all of your teeth. Peanut butter popularity really began to stick in the 1920s when commercial production made the spread more accessible and affordable. This time, it was the budget-friendly yet satiating quality of peanut butter that appealed to mothers feeding their families during the Depression. A few decades later, choosy moms opted for a peanut butter that contained sugar and molasses. Today, a trip down the grocery aisle reveals a variety of choices. Natural butters forego the sweeteners. Other peanut butters add swirls of chocolate or jelly. New flavors include cinnamon, maple, even fiery spice. Of course, the mainstay telltale preference stands, crunchy or creamy. It's easy to predict the results of an online personality quiz. Team Crunchy, you love rock music and power through difficult situations. Team Creamy, you own every Enya CD and several cats. With almond and hazelnut rivals crowding the shelf, peanut butter continues to reinvent itself. Enter peanut butter powder, a dehydrated low-fat option for the health conscious. Just add water for gooey delight. Also recently released, peanut butter to-go packs, small enough to fit in your purse or your backpack. Sounds like it's time for a trip. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.